brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man. Until we've thoroughly tested every last close chested view, find the more you think you know, unless you really do. Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we be without THC? I said, chat Greg Carwood and Company. Folks, it's probably no surprise to hear that magical activities are going on within our world pretty much constantly, and this is a tale as old as time. From man's first cave paintings to the Super Bowl halftime show, Pulling ideas down from the imaginative realm and firmly planting them in the physical through conscious attention and art creation just seems to be one of those quirky things man does. We've heard about the concept of the muse and countless artists who have been quite clear about not exactly knowing where their art comes from, sometimes saying it finds them more so than the other way around, so there's definitely some interesting interplay between consciousness and ideas that I don't think we've fully unpacked. Yet it's something the occult world has been exploring and experimenting with behind the scenes for years. And while these activities are usually relegated to the shadows, few people really understand the scope of magical thinking, art, and its influence on the wider culture. Which brings us to today's guest. His name is Carl Abrahamson, a writer, publisher, magioanthropologist, filmmaker, and more. His latest book is titled A Culture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward, and in it he explores that curious crossroads between art and magic, discusses his insights from over 30 years in occult movements, and takes a deeper look into the phenomena and people who have been the most crucial in modern esoteric developments, including Carl Jung, Anton LaVey, Aleister Crowley, Rudolf Steiner, and more. An insightful sage of the esoteric ways, Carl, welcome to THC. Thank you. What a magnificent introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the nine to five at this point, but thank you. Thank you. And um, I really appreciate you joining me. I really enjoyed the book and I really just like the term a culture and the general exploration of where ideas come from, how they spread, what makes them potent. There is a ton of food for thought in there. And we should probably kick this off with some type of overview. Maybe you can expand on this term, a culture, and the importance of that space between art and magic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, huge subjects, of course. But let, let's begin with the word. Uh, Oculture is uh, something that uh, the artist Genesis Piorage uh, uh, put together these two in themselves beautiful, potent words, the occult and culture, and they merge really well together, so you get Oculture. But it's way beyond that kind of uh, punny little mix. It also carries the significance because, you know, that's what the book is about. These two things, these two sort of gray areas have been um, not only coexisting, but working together, sometimes merging more, sometimes merging less. But there's always been an interplay uh, uh, between the occult and culture. And most people are fairly, you know, knowledgeable when someone asks them, what is culture? They can give their own response saying, well, it's this and that and it's the arts and, you know, it's in the public sphere and uh, things like that. But when it comes to the occult, uh, then we drift into something that's usually quite tainted with um, either prejudice or um, misunderstandings, uh, semantic complexities or religious fear. You know, it's kind of a, a morass or truly a gray area on which people can project their own uh, fantasies, whether they be good fantasies or whether they be bad fantasies. So the occult is more of a problemat- problematic thing. Etymologically, it means hidden. It, that's just pure Latin, you know, occult, hidden. And if we look at what's been hidden over the centuries or even the millennia, uh, it's usually uh, ideas that go against the grain, connected to behavior that go against the grain. And that these things have interacted with culture. It then becomes easier to understand when you keep it on this sort of general level and sort of disregarding the hocus pocus uh, for now at least. Mm-hmm. So these could have been renegade people who had an idea of their own, whether it be primitive scientists or experimental scientists or uh, artists who wants to explore new forms, uh, philosophers and even religious people who say that, no, there's another kind of divinity or there's another kind of spirituality, you know, beyond the bend or around the corner. But in the times that they have been living in, it's been too radical, too, you know, too powerful in a way because it constitutes a threat to the ruling uh, hegemony of things. So, and when, again, when we keep it on that general level, people can relate to it. We can see that going on today too, in a way, where things underneath the surface, they are... um, a little bit feared, but if it's strong enough, it will, just like flowers, you know, come up even through thick asphalt. And if we then drift from the general and slightly more into the occult occult, meaning the stuff that's filled with magic and hocus pocus and occultism and esoteric things, that's always been a part of human culture. Usually, as with the other things I mentioned, science, philosophy, etc., it's been kept underneath the surface for two main reasons, either to protect the philosophy and the teaching and the techniques from the, uh, you know, the rabble, the people who cannot understand or, you know, who would kill them. And so that's like the protecting what you have. But then also because of extreme antagonism and draconian measures, also protecting their lives from people or systems that have an active interest in killing the philosophies of magic, killing the uh, techniques of magic, killing the magical people, etc. Because we have been living under a rule of uh, monotheistic power structures for a long, long, long time. And they have never been benevolent. They have never been um, open-minded. They have just wanting to 
they've been wanting to secure their own power structures. And then you could argue, is that something decidedly monotheistic? Well, perhaps not. But if we look at the polytheistic cultures, they are usually, you know, just inherently more open-minded and thereby more tolerant. So regardless if the occult is just stuff that is not seen with a naked eye, you have to scratch the surface and then you find things. But all of these things, whether it's uh, magic or science, whatever, has always gone hand in hand with the development of culture. Sometimes those hands have been in the dark because it's been too dangerous for the people who've been working on new concepts to to flaunt them in a way. But that the relationship has always been there um, is a fact. And that's why occulture is kind of a, um, it's punny, yes, but it's also a brilliant word because it truly is a synthesis. It means a synthesis of something that is totally essential for human well-being and for human cultural well-being. Yeah, I really like the term, and I think that's a great explanation. And it does seem like magic kind of works better, maybe, if you're the only group that does it. And history is full of authority figures telling people there's nothing to it, or it's evil, or don't do it. And that, to me, is a reason to look into it, you know? It's like... Exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just been my approach to it. And it's also natural i mean it's part of the environment and it almost seems like the human story itself and i guess i would ask you what do you consider the most important points when trying to incorporate or reincorporate this component this magical component to understanding nature and reality for people who might be like what are you talking about magic i never think about magic or it never comes up in my life how do we fold it back in mhm i think um to have that kind of uh, to have nature, uh, not only as a kind of abstracted analogy, but as an actual concrete thing, really helps. Because when you think about nature, or it's like when you talk about it with most, uh, you know, uh, urban people, they think that well, nature, you take a walk in the forest, or you go out into the countryside, and you, it's always daytime and it's sunny and it's nice, and you take a walk, you know, go on a hike. <laughs> but the darkness of nature is usually much more rewarding in terms of revelations. You can have like beautiful experiences in nature in the daytime just because of this, you know, uh, beauty and a system. And it's like this kind of harmony there that is actually there not because of humans, although hubris would dictate otherwise, mm -hmm. but actually in spite of human presence. Uh, and it's very strong. But as the sun sets and it becomes like a twilight and then darkness, if you're all alone, in the forest, uh, and you're used to being in an urban environment, you will very likely freak out because there's no nowhere to charge your phone. There are no lights. You know, yeah. There's nothing. There is just an um, incredible variety of sounds. And of course, if you're not used to them, you will think that everything is a threat. <laughs> so uh, just by being out alone in nature, like one evening or one night, for, or as long as you can take it, you are exposed to your own primordial fears. And that's basically where everything begins. Uh, you know, you cannot really, like, you know, Jung said in a way, this word individuate. I love that. It's like the process of individuation in which you become or develop or hone or trim yourself so that you become the person you want to be, uh, basically. And you cannot really begin that process unless you know what the strong emotions are 
So that's what I mean is that it can be good to meet your own fear in that kind of safe way. I mean, if you were out in the like Central African uh, jungle, it could be very dangerous. But in our forests, maybe the most we could hope for or not hope for is maybe an elk or a moose or a you know lynx or maybe a wolf. But it's not really that dangerous. But still, we are super scared. Um, <laughs> I, I want I would like to sort of assume that most people will be super scared simply because of the fact that it's not it's an uncommon environment, and our stimuli of safety and comfort are simply not there. And that's a remarkable feeling of exactly uh, safety and comfort to to crawl into a tent, which is basically just you know as you know some kind of you know, uh, synthetic material on some lightweight uh, structure. But just being inside a tent is a remarkable sense of being inside a cave in a way. So with these simple tricks, you can integrate a deeper understanding of yourself, of how is it that I am so scared of this thing? This is just nature. I'm just, uh, you know, removed myself into the forest and it's beautiful. The sunset, that was beautiful. Now it's dark. Now I am afraid. Or maybe some people will just think that, wow, this is so super cool. But no matter what, the emotions that you, you get uh, in that state, in that, you know, uh, frame of mind, they will be strong. Whereas emotions in an urban comfort environment are usually quite bland. You know, we, we are moderated. We are, what do you call it, uh, an anesthetized in a way, <laughs> uh, by, 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 you know, entertainment and by medica medication and by alcohol and by, you know, social play. Uh, it's a kind of a lukewarm existence. So what I'm getting to is that in order to get, your, uh, get to know yourself better, in order to begin on this process of individuation, it's highly recommended that you actually confront yourself within a natural structure, within nature. And that could be at sea, or it could be in the forest, or in the mountains. It's just that kind of proximity to something that is so strong will trigger stuff in your own psyche that will be very, very um, beneficial. And then, of course, what should come, I'm not saying that it always does, uh, some people have to work really hard with it, uh, what should come is this encounter with yourself, in a way. And then the, the, the next step is that when you know yourself that well within this natural context, you will also see that you are a part of this same nature. And here we can begin to sort of trace things back to uh, ancient shamanism or to Gnostic, uh, the Gnostics, even Gnostic Christianity, like the very first Christians, saying that, you know, there is a kind of divinity at play here. The shamans say that, well, it's in nature. The spirit is in nature. And many other religions would, would stick with that. Uh, as we, meaning like Westerners, became more and more abstracted and more and more intellectual, more and more mental, uh, we separated ourselves from that sort of primordial awe or, or feeling of oneness with nature. And that's a shame. And that's something I stress um, in the book also, is that we have to get back in a way or, or move on towards the future in which we reclaim those shamanic things because uh, that's ingrained in every serious or pure kind of discipline or magic whatever it all stems from the same source so if you want to play with that kind of thing or uh, learn about these things uh, the best thing to do is actually start with with uh, shamanism and study gnosticism in a way because it's a direct communication between you and 
nature. You know, there's nothing else. We don't need any divine names or, or symbols even. It's right there. It's right there in, in being immersed in things that grow wildly. Mm, I love it, man. It is almost like the process kind of unfolds itself if you let it. And when you sit with all that, you got to have so much respect for the ancestors. They're kind of confronting fear and the unknown every 12 hours like a baked-in initiation. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of crazy when you think about it from our modern world. And then you yeah. think about when was the last time maybe some of the listeners were in the dark alone at night for even just an hour or so, maybe never, maybe 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, perhaps there's uh, some conditioning involved there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. When you think about it, how, you know, placated we are, you know, <laughs> how soft, how soft we've become. Yes. And of course, you could argue that we live in the best of worlds, etc. And we have so much freedom and the possibility to do things. It is mind blowing, actually. You know, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm not in any way sort of dismissing that as being irrelevant. But I can see that for most people, <laughs> it's like a very superficial kind of dance where you dance on the uh, eye or you skate on some kind of ice of superficiality but you cannot really see uh, into the depth because there is this ice in between and you cannot really look up to the sky or higher up uh, either because then you will sort of fall because you will sort of skid and, and slip. So it, it's, um, it is the best of all worlds, but it would, could be even more better, according to me, if people became a bit more open-minded, explore themselves, explored other states of consciousness and just try to actively integrate what they find, uh, and, and preferably within a natural context, meaning a context that uh, touches upon nature as such. Because um, the city, which is, you know, uh, most people don't live in cities, but many people do, especially in the, in the Western world, and that kind of urbanization is, is increasing. It is kind of a perverted existence to not actually walk on the earth, but to have this crust of artificiality uh, between the earth and ourselves it's highly detrimental to health to psychic health to everything basically yeah. uh, so I, I think the more people uh, can you know get their asses out in nature the better absolutely <laughs> i'm with you and i think it's pretty clear after reading the book that we both have a great appreciation for counterculture and the rebels out on the fringe mm -hmm. and you focus largely on occult movements for about as long as I've been alive, to be honest. And this show is pretty rooted in conspiracy culture. And I see the two as synergistic and complementary in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But there are big parts of conspiracy culture that treat them like oil and water. Maybe they don't have the right definition. Maybe they only see the negative side. But how would you equate the two or how compatible would you consider these two flavors of alternative thinking? Well, I think that the just spontaneously, I think that the, the biggest likeness, the, the biggest similarity is this thing where you have a core. That core is usually, to begin with, a few people. And the core is actually an idea or a set of ideas. And in the case of, you know, occultism, you have um, people doing strange things that sort of emanate from this core of, of uh, thinking, this phil core philosophy. So when you have any kind of esoteric uh, environment focused around uh, this core, it becomes almost like a kind of an atomic structure 
we have a center, which is the, the thought core, which is a proton, and then you have these electrons circling around it. And they can't really leave their orbits. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there's a kind of a magnetic thing because it gets what is now called like an egregorian energy. You know, the core attracts. And the core might originally have been something else, but that's besides the point because the dynamic of these kinds of things when it moves over generations is that it becomes mythic. And then the attraction can actually become uh, stronger than it originally was. And you could take like mm, Christianity, for for example, which was basically just like, a, 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 a again, like a rebel, uh, rebel rousing thing. But then as it uh, became more and more well documented and people saw that they could have their own uh, power structures because this thing was becoming popular, then of course they jumped at the opportunity and then it morphed into something different. But it's still connected to that original core, uh, but probably not ad verbatim because the Bible was written, you know, so much um, later, essentially, or, or put together so much later. But in terms of conspiracies, you can find a similar, similar kind of thing is that there is an idea. Uh, someone has a revelation saying that those people are actually doing this. They claim to be doing that, but they're actually doing this. And I see this as a negative thing. Do you agree? And then when there are people who are agreeing upon this thing, it could be for various reasons, then you have a similar kind of egregore or core where they become like electrons around this uh, initial proton, uh, which is a formulation or an assumption or a theory or a speculation or even a prejudice. So in that sense, schematically, it's the same. Another similarity, I would say, if you look at it historically, is a kind of uh, obsessionality. Mm. You know, the obsession with the idea becomes very, very strong. We can also see see uh, similarities um, um, in that regard, if budding political movements, for instance. But they, political movements are usually, initially, actually conspiracies because they take fuel, uh, antithetical fuel, from the outside, like pointing the finger towards one specific group of uh, dissidents or other other people of other uh, minds or other ethnic ethnicities. Uh, eth- what's it called? Ethnicities. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Different people, simply. Uh, and and um, uh, so thereby you have that kind of um, dynamic where it becomes something uh, larger than the original idea because people become obsessed with it. And the funny thing, or sometimes not so funny, is that the reason people become attracted to this might be just a vague kind of resonance with the core idea, a vague resonance with a political idea or a religious idea, or even with a magical concept in a, in a magical group. But the reason they, they join or, or move closer to the core could be just, you know, psychological issues. They, they want a new kind of friendship. They feel at home. And that's something that movements of all kinds uh, have used to their own advantage, meaning then you have the cultic, uh, the cultic behavior, mm. which exists, you know, in, in uh, occult movements, in occult orders, but also in political environments. And um, uh, to a large extent, I would say, uh, in a um, conspiratorial uh, world, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's uh, 
if the main object, for instance, is uh, respect for uh, cultures from outer space, you know, kind of a UFO culture, mm -hmm. then, of course, the enemy will be those here on Earth, politicians with the military, who try to put the lid on it, in a way. You always need that kind of scapegoating thing. But when you have those things in place, meaning a welcoming structure, an, ob an idea filled with obsessional potential, and uh, this kind of social glue also in potential, then you have uh, a good thing going if you want a cult. <laughs> That's a great breakdown. And I do see them as kind of similar spirits. Great point about the obsession, you know, the passion. It's very much there, a component of both worlds. And both of them are kind of about getting past mainstream culture. They're anti-authoritarian, kind of about reality hacking. I mean, why do people like conspiracy? Well, I would think it's because they're trying to get at the raw truth rather than the vanilla flavored surface so that they can probably navigate the world better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, magic is the same way. It's about self-improvement and strengthening yourself to avoid manipulation. It's like a type of consciousness armor, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also that that, that is a great difference, actually. You, you call it self-improvement, and, that, and that's absolutely true, because that's uh, usually not the case in, in uh, basic conspiracy theories, because there is uh, an obsession with an idea, but that idea, or working with the idea or against the, the enemy, so to speak, doesn't necessarily improve your life. It doesn't have that kind of human potential thing. Whereas in, in uh, occultism uh, or traditionally in like uh, call it like uh, a philosophical environment where you use experimental techniques, it's always there that you know when you try these things and you make them work for you, your life will be better. Uh, but I'm I don't uh, to my knowledge that's not the case with for instance UFO conspiracies. Is that if you join this UFO conspiracy, your life will be much better. Uh, I don't think people use that as a kind of a um, an attraction beacon. Usually the, the attraction lies in a resonance on a deeper level, which is probably usually that the people who want to join in are disgruntled in the same way as the formulators. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Obviously, conspiracy and magic, they both cover a huge amount of topics. But I would think uh, in my formative years, it was learning about banking, learning about debt, mm -hmm. learning not to get stuck in credit card debt, yeah. learning about mind control techniques and the power of advertising, learning about the cog in the wheel, nine to five rat race, mm -hmm. and maybe how to pivot away from getting stuck in that rut. I mean, that is the true value or was the true value to me. And I love UFOs as well. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah. but I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. No, but but I I, I see what you're saying. No, but that's true. But many of these things that you talk about uh, from the conspiratorial environment, they are actually um, you know uh, magical, liberating things. Uh, what I mean by magical, they may not be specifically occult or esoteric, but they're magical in the sense that they will change your life. Like if you uh, become insightful about these. Uh, relationships that seem so normal but are in actual fact abnormal to human well-being then if you break away from that then of course that's a magical thing then you are changing your life to the better i was thinking more of of uh, like very spaced out things of of, <laughs> uh, of aliens and stuff but, oh, but yeah. you're right in in terms of of uh, societal control and stuff like that yeah if you can inform people about that and, and, you know, risk being called a, um, a conspiracy theorist or practitioner, 
then you know it doesn't really matter the main thing is that you do what you feel um is right for your development indeed and i'm taking the term back or trying to it's a <laughs> tough road to hoe but as for magic you write about it as a powerful individualistic process of transmutation and betterment Mm-hmm. But you also say when collective approaches are attempted, the process and results turn into something else. Manipulations, politics, demagogia, power tripping, and so forth. Initial communal goals are one thing. Manipulation of the masses is another. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets at the heart of what makes conspiracy folks so skeptical. But avoiding a tool doesn't keep it from existing or stop it from being used against you. And I'm kind of curious... What type of role you think occultism and magical ritual plays within the power structures on the planet today? Is it still there? Uh, I think so, but it's it's morphing in a very intelligent way. Uh, and the reason why it's intelligent is that it's somehow connected to uh, to nature um, in itself, in herself, as such, whatever you want to uh, call it. We are connected to nature, whether we are completely urban and completely destroyed, fragmented by technology, uh, or living we're living in like a mist of of entertainment. We are still parts of nature, and if we can connect, you know, and I I don't know what term to use there, like mentally or spiritually or in the soul. All of these terms are so um, you know ingrained with problematic uh, associations. But I do think that if we can just open ourselves up, preferably in nature proper, uh, and get that kind of initial uh, glimpse of that connection, then that's a good, good way to to start. And as we are human beings, we are also the creators of human culture and human progress and human uh, semantics, human language, all of these things. So if we open ourselves up, to new input, then we will have more uh, and different fodder to use for formulation. And I can see very interesting things going on now where thematically, the thematics of magic, you know, the historical, the the weirdos, uh, the occultists, the artists who used occult themes, that's really around these days. (laughs) You know, there's like major art show after major art show after major art show all over the world happening and it's been going on now for for a decade at least and a lot of people it's not marginalized anymore a lot of people see this and they're exposed to it so thereby what was once ostracized and pointed finger at is now commonplace and totally integrated in a kind of not a lowbrow but a highbrow context. Mm. You know, people, intellectuals uh, who used to shun anything, you know, experimental or even spiritual, can now go and say, yeah, I went to Barcelona and saw this wonderful exhibition of, you know, esoteric paintings. Because there's always something going on somewhere. Uh, also goes for, for, you know, popular entertainment and academic treatises. It's, it's more around. So that I see as a result of need. We need this different input. We need uh, to, to be more open-minded. We need, uh, when we're open-minded, to have a different kind of input, preferably an input of inspiration. That's very important. And what is it that we're going to be inspired by? Well, there is only one thing, essentially, and that's your own relationship with nature and vice versa, nature's relationship with you. And once you have made that connection, 
you need to stick with it and you need to develop it because I think and my thesis is that you cannot really make any progress in life unless you have these bits and pieces in order inside yourself. Uh, again, I avoid using, you know, in your soul or in your mind, uh, just just on the inside, you know, in, in your inner life, because then it will also reflect in the outer, meaning decision-making, what you do, how you approach things, how you treat other people. Most people who are bullies, most people who are completely unindividuated or, you know, imbalanced to the degree of self-destruction or uh, destruction of other people is simply because they haven't even, you know, dared to take the few trembling steps. And, you know, someone who is fully individuated is usually filled with respect for life, life as such, other people's lives, uh, the life of, of plants and, and the earth. So it's kind of easy to read people. You know, you can see how far they are in their own process. Then you can, there's no moralism involved here. I'm not saying that you need to, it's, it's not your job to, to save them if they are absolute retards and they will never have a, you know, they will never have a future. Then you should just maybe leave them be and focus on yourself. I'm a strong believer in what I call egotistical altruism is that you have to shine by example. You cannot force feed anyone else. You know, that always goes wrong. So you should just focus on yourself, mind your own business, yet uh, be willing to spread this kind of inspiration is their need. And of course, actual help if someone needs that. But the main thing is to go from this, you know, collective power dynamic because it always ends up in disaster. You know, so many beautiful ideas have been handled well in the beginning. It's grown and grown into movements, etc., etc. But it's, it always ends in the same way. Some kind of disaster, some kind of corruption, some kind of, you know, abusive situations. It seems that people, um, individuals with power in collectives simply can't handle it. And I don't think that man, meaning man, woman, uh, isn't meant to be elevated to positions where you lose yourself, basically. And that's the message I have, you know, to find yourself and stick with yourself. Right, that's a great message. Yeah, it's enough, and it's quite enough. You know, it could take a lifetime to to figure that out. <laughs> but it's, it's still, people just want to be little herd animals. You know, they want to be whipped by someone who claims to have the truth. But in actual fact, the people who claim to have the truth very seldom do. Right, and egotistical altruism. I like that term, and it kind of jives with you know Jordan Peterson, big popular guy right now, but. His words about all the protesters and people getting up in arms and going out in the streets with posters mm -hmm. and wanting to change the world and throwing out their philosophy is he says, you know, before you do all that, clean your room. Yeah. Like, let's get back to bases <laughs> yeah, and build yeah. the blocks of what it means to be a real example. Like, if your room looks like a disaster, that's a very basic human thing. What do you have to change the world? That's very complex to try to, like, mm. you know expouse your philosophy and how everything's going to reach utopia you need to go back and and work on those fundamentals i think that's kind of a great lesson too and it seems yeah. like to me magical thinking or magical processes are more baked in and inherent in us than we realize possibly unavoidable and in one piece you have an example of kids playing with dolls and action figures framing them as physical talismans that kids project their imagination into. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really interesting example. And I wondered if you could expand on magical processes and other 
simple areas of life that we just might not recognize. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's look at it from the point of view of absolute wonderful super potential. We, we are adults. I mean, uh, I'm 52. I don't know your age, but you, I, you seem to be an adult. Barely. Uh, <laughs> barely legal. And, and no, but I, I, I think that uh, we can, you know, have the perspective of an adult, meaning, you know, we understand causality. We understand, you know, the rational mind. We also understand the irrational mind. We can have a, a very wide perspective on existence and what's possible. Kids live in a kind of a magical fantasy world actually for the most part and then growing up simply means you have to strip that away and become more and more rational more and more causal but we as um insightful adults can also integrate that kind of thinking which you know for simplicity's sake we could call magical thinking meaning that if we have you and i have like i have a stick and you have a stone and we say that you know uh, this is a magical wand and this is a magical disc then on the rational level, it's just words. You know, it means nothing. You know, but when you leave the pure, what do you call it, the pure level of language, and actually, you know, you and I look at each other and we say, okay, this time for real. And we both decide in our interaction that this stick is actually a magical wand, meaning it's an object with which I can enforce my magical will on my outer surroundings. And you have your magical disc. You can do similar thing with something that was originally just a stone, but now it's something else because we've decided it and we use our imagination, our fantasy faculty. And the thing is, how do you measure what's real? Because for kids, they're playing, they're play acting, they're, they're games, they're real. Their apprehension of reality is real. It doesn't correspond with how a mathematics professor at Harvard looks at reality, but it's nonetheless real for them. So if we look at the sort of malleable aspects of the human mind and, and the apprehension of reality, that creates a, it's a kind of a game changer because then you can say that I decide what's real. And of course, it can be cumbersome and quite problematic to, to uh, work this kind of magic uh, on the pavement in a rush hour, mm-hmm. then someone will probably call the cops, maybe. Uh, but if you do it like it's supposed to be done in a temple setting, meaning a kind of fantasy chamber which has a limited time, a limited space, and you enter it in a ceremonial or ritual, ritualistic way, then you change your mind frame. Like LaVey so beautifully put it, enter the intellectual decompression chamber. That's very, very important. Hmm. And then when you go into that, for that time, in that space, you can do anything. And of course, this is based in a theory saying that if you open your mind in, the, in a similar way, then you can program yourself and thereby, uh, with you being the proxy, program the outer world. And this is you know, very experimental uh, psychology, very experimental behavioral science. And of course, those sciences haven't caught up yet. But they will. I'm sure they will. And the thing is that when push comes to shove, you know, it doesn't really matter whether something is acknowledged by empirical science. What matters is the kind of pragmatic approach. If it works for you, then it's beautiful. If you get results from doing uh, oddball things in a ritualistic manner, then that's beautiful. To me, that just means that you have elevated yourself 
to a higher degree of being human. Because that's something that humans have done since, again, this is a silly expression, since the dawn of man. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. But, you know, uh, that's really the truth of it. People have been very experimental. Initially, they tried to survive. They tried, you know, in panic to survive much fiercer beasts than humans. And then eventually other human tribes. Uh, and that's something that's <laughs> obviously still going on today. Uh, but but uh, that kind of thinking, you know, tr thinking truly outside of the box. The box is something that was constructed, I would say, in the Enlightenment, like late 18th century and onwards. That's when the, the box <laughs> was created. Mm. And that's the box that we have to... to um, step out of now it's time high time that we stepped out of that box cheers to that and you hear that expression all the time think outside the box but i've never heard someone express like when was that box constructed so i think <laughs> that's really interesting and uh my favorite part of the book was the economy of magic there's no free lunch or free magical success because it cuts right to the core of magic and people's feelings about magical transactions I've expressed before that I've done a few experimentations in magic, and I was faced with a decent amount of, well, now you're compromised, you made a deal with the devil for your soul, and now you can't be trusted. <laughs> yeah. Yet, these same people enjoy the comforts of the modern age at the expense of the third world and the earth itself, sitting in cozy air conditioning that <laughs> yeah. is energy draining, sitting in clothes that are likely made in a sweatshop on the other side of the world, yeah. bitching about pollution but not enough to stop driving a gas guzzling car so and it's all paid for by a credit card which is the same kind of economy you know yes yes and it's like living good lives while the empire does your dirty work it's yeah. a bit hypocritical to criticize exchange in a magical sense while ignoring this transactionary nature of everyday reality wouldn't you say absolutely absolutely and you know this this uh uh, I don't know exactly when when um, this thing began. You know, what I mean specifically the economical thing, you know, with a credit-based economy. Uh, in higher finances, it's of course always been there. You know, because there have been banks, you know, have borrowed money to states or cities and huge corporations, and it's all been like one very abstracted economical field that has absolutely been based on credit. But for the normal Joe, in a way, normal Joe and and uh, what's the feminine Jane. Nancy maybe. <laughs> Jane, normal Joe and Jane, of course. Um, then, you know, uh, I think the invention or the development of the concept of credit card, because you could, of course, get a loan, like a mortgage for your house and a mortgage for your car and stuff like that. But those are heavy expenses and need to be dealt with in some, you know, uh, profit making way for the people who lend the money. Uh, but the, the credit card was something else because that's even small expenses. That means that you have no freedom at all in terms of making decisions, whether should I, can I afford to buy this chocolate bar or can I afford to go to the movies? It's like, you know, way beyond getting the money together or borrowing the money to buy a car or a house. So when people have given up <laughs> even that kind of um, minuscule, uh, spending and you get that stuff on your card then it's very likely that when you're in that system you will never be free because it's all based on barely paying uh the credit card bill you know and most people can't do it like from a, on a month-to-month -month basis they live with a much higher debt than what they can afford to pay back that specific month and it's it's not shameful it's actually natural 
it's encouraged it's actually enforced you know so yeah. so and one thing one thing is very remarkable here in in uh, when you compare i i spend a lot of time in the us uh, actually i love the us so but one thing is so uh, remarkable for me as a european and that's the fact that um, people talk a lot about their own credit rating <laughs> as if the, as the, you know as it I, I got a better rating this year and, you know, I have this and that and I need that rating to, to get the new car and, and whatever. It's like, uh, over here, you know, it's basically the same kind of system, but people aren't as obsessed by it. And I can't explain that. I think that Americans have, have grown up, uh, I would say that the 20th century specifically was very much uh, growing up in a kind of financial, uh, public, a, a public kind of financial thinking. Where you you don't really have any secrets, you know, your life, your financial life is transparent, and uh, there's a kind of a an obsessionality to that too. I was thinking also of the expression that used to be, I think, originally uh, an advertising slogan, but then became like a household mantra or a proto meme in a way, and that's the thing: what's good for General Motors is good for America. Meaning, I don't know if you've heard that, but I heard it. Yeah. I've seen it mentioned in in advertising uh, history in a way is that how things can change from being an advertising meme into a sociological meme into an actual you know life wisdom in a way it's a kind of a dark wisdom but but uh, still you know what's good for general motors is good for america and people take that as they don't question that statement and that kind of focus on uh, what do you call it like macro economy and how that sort of seeps through even into the micro economies of of uh, normal people of jane and and joe uh that's kind of remarkable because it's not something that's designed to make people free mm. uh, in the old days it was like save up to realize your dreams save up your money uh you know have a savings account and and um uh, you know uh live your dream when you have enough money for it but today a savings account is kind of a uh, a spare resource when you can't pay your credit card bill. Then you take from your savings account and, and pay off your credit card bill. So it, it, that kind of economic thinking has changed considerably since, I would say, the later half of the 20th century. And let's return to magic then. It's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say that it's completely analogous, that people today are more careless, that they are more prone to making deals with forces for quick success, stuff like that. The only thing that I can say that's interesting is that there seems to be a resurgence in interest in old magics, like medieval magics, the grimoires, trafficking with spirits and demons, something that was, uh, I think, originally concocted by, by the church in a way. You know, it's, it's their symbols. They're talking about these demons. And then the magicians uh, sort of usurped. They, they took over that thing maybe to to mock the church or whatever but now those old grimoires are taken as uh, de facto uh, magical uh, textbooks in a way and i believe that whatever you do with zest and uh, gusto and you know a, a, a pure heart in a way that will work it will work you know so calling upon these uh, angels and spirits and demons that will absolutely work somehow in in the depths of these people's psyches but the main thing is that what, I, what i'm getting to is that that is a typical uh, uh, situation or dynamic 
where the economic aspects of magic is very, very uh, clear. And that goes also for a lot of the the African uh, proto-religions, you know, like voodoo and the stuff that traveled out into the world to the West Indies and to South America, uh, all of these things. It's a kind of a... a um, uh, barter, you know, it's a, it's a bargain, it's a deal making going on. I'll, I'll sacrifice this and I get this. There's a very clear cut economical thinking. Um, but also, of course, you have the, like the Faust story, which is not only a story, it was actually already when Goethe wrote it, it's like a myth already. And it's still a myth within magic. And that's why I think it's in part is why these grimoires are so, so, uh, popular. People are attracted to them for various reasons. It's this thing where you buy an easy uh, declaration uh, before some kind of force that is stronger than you are. You declare what you want in life, and this being says that, well, I can give that to you if I get this in return. So it's a deal-making. And then, of course, everything goes wrong. And that could have to do with some kind of inherent pseudo-Christian moralism, because who knows? There's not been any scientific results over the centuries um, or scientific analysis over the centuries of uh, magical deal-making. Maybe all of these demons and spirits or whatever it is have fulfilled their parts of the bargain, and maybe people have been very happy with this kind of magical system. We don't know. But if, if we, we take uh, sort of the mythic and the, the literary accounts uh, whether they have been, uh, you know, influenced by Christianity or not, you can see that these things most often go wrong. And that's the thing with economy too. Like if you overspend, it will create problems. Yeah. If you don't pay back what you owe, you will be even more in debt. And that can, you know, ruin, ruin the lives of families, for instance. So, so what I'm saying is in this text, the economy of magic is simply that uh, it's very good to invest. You generate, you generate magical energy in yourself, and then you can invest that in your magical workings or in life in the shape of inspiration and, you know, just well-being that beams from you. And that, that kind of investment in others or simply in your own uh, surrounding to increase your own magical energy even more. That's a kind of what I call like a, a positive economy because you will attract things then that you can, you know, quote unquote, buy with your magical energy. Mm. And, and that's a better way to, to go about it than simply demand of some external force saying, hey, you over there in the dark corner, give me what I want and I give you this. Because yeah. then, then you don't know those, those forces. You don't know them. It's like a bank at least. You, you can have some <laughs> semblance, semblance of knowing the, what the interest rate is. But you don't know if you... you uh, uh, unless you work in a very active traditional system, and I'm thinking again of the sort of the um, exodus things that stem from, from Africa, those are systems that have been worked for a long, long, long time. And those forces that are used there, the people who work them usually know them very, very well. So uh, I would say that's a more a healthier banking system in those <laughs> those uh, systems. Yeah, I think it's a great analogy that plays on multiple levels. You just don't want to get over your head when you're dealing with MasterCard, Visa, or the pantheon of contactable entities. It's quite simple. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, I like it. Yeah. And uh, to quote that piece, I mentioned this to you before we started, but you write, in our Western sphere, self and will rule supreme. Without self-knowledge and will, we get nowhere. Or perhaps at most, we get shuffled around by others who are more eloquent in defining us 
and who thereby can use us for their own ends. But if self and will are there, then we have a good solid foundation for how magic and life work. And I think that's such a great point too. There's nothing negative about having drive and motivation and defined goals because as you said, if you don't define your goals, if you don't define your will, some shitty corporation will be more than happy to define it for you and you can spend a few decades in some soul-sucking cubicle, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, it's very interesting to think about where does the, you know, the negative connotation come from? Like with self, is usually equated with some ruthless egotism, but it's really not. You know, self is just a container, a kind of a mental uh, container that contains your your driving program in life, and it's it's um, you know con what how you interact with other people, how you interact with yourself. It's all like you know, I was like a little box, you know, inside your container um, where. The, your driver's seat is. It's like the driving program. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing negative in being proud of that, in being happy about the way you drive your vehicle. It's just wonderful. And yet there is a lot of, you know, prejudice thing because when, when people talk, um, and more so in Europe, I say, in other parts of, of, uh, of, of the world too, in America, it's just, you know, it's pretty okay to have that drive. And I think that's a great thing. But then again, there's also the averse or, you know, possibly negative thing with that is that when you become uh, hubristic, you know, and that's very common in magic too. When you get a technology and you have that technology working for you, whether it's like from a Western system or an Eastern system or an African system, doesn't matter. When you realize, wow, this is really working, then you become sort of inflated. You know, and I, I mentioned it in the book. I've mentioned it in, in many lectures too. This analogy of, of um, Mickey Mouse and the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia. Hmm. You know, where he be, he becomes so hubristic, he thinks that he can he can control uh, all of these magical forces, but it just ends in disaster. And Mickey Mouse is overwhelmed by by the forces that he uh, evokes in a way. So I think that uh, egotism is good, but it needs to be in moderation, not for moralistic reasons but for the reasons of uh, balance, simply. Because, you know, we all knew as, as, as uh, kids, too, like in the playground, you know, some kids were just uh, uh, smart ass or, or smart assholes, and you didn't want to play with them because they just they thought that they knew everything and had all the answers and they were going to run the show. But, you know, they, they just uh, were little shits, you know. So so they, they you know, they, they were uh, discounted by their own, lack of self-realization they believe too much in their selves mm -hmm. yeah hubris is big in conspiracy too people find a few threads and they're like i'm done researching i know the answers it's all the freemasons you know <laughs> stuff like that yeah well again a culture is the book do let people know about any of your other work they might want to know about or where to keep up with you and what you're doing yeah, yeah. I mean, this this uh, a fairly steady stream of stuff. The book that came before our culture in 2014 is also worth checking out. It's called uh, Resonances. You know, like a mix between reason and resonances. So Resonances, and it's on the beautiful publisher Scarlet Imprint. Uh, mm. I think their address is scarletimprint.com, and they have many, many beautiful books. And then, of course, I think the best uh, website for me is uh, patreon.com. Uh, slash Vanessa two three Carl 
Vanessa 23 Carl. Uh, that's where me and my wife are doing all of our, you know, uh, shenanigans and keep in touch with people. I also have a website for, um, for my, you know, you know, personal blogging and stuff. And that's simply my name, Carl Abrahamson. Dot com. That's Abrahamson with two S's and Carl with a C. CarlAbrahamson.com and Patreon.com slash Vanessa23Carl. And that's basically it. Uh, through these sites, people can find a lot of things. Uh, my you know, publishing company and the record company and filmmaking and all, all that stuff. Right on. And Scarlet Imprint, yeah, what a great company to reference because this whole conversation has been about just the throwaway digital culture, and yet they do make yeah. these beautiful, beautiful books. I've been lucky to have oh, yeah. a few. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. <laughs> well, awesome. Carl, this has been a lot of fun. You know a lot about a lot. Keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Bye. There we have it, guys. Carl Abrahamson, big fan. A fairly complimentary episode to last week's with Chris Bennett. Magic and ancient culture last week. Magic and more current culture this week. Carl is a real ideas man in the truest sense of the word. And just given all the recent talk about conspiracy as a culture, how to make it better, how to be involved in it in such a way that it actually improves your life, I thought it was appropriate, and I'm sorry if it seems like I'm going into this too much lately. Maybe we do just want to decompress and have some fun talking about aliens and demons. That has a place in at least what I do, for sure. But I am just a bit sick of the chorus line that I'm hearing a lot lately that conspiracy has no value. Being interested in it gets you nowhere. And I'm getting a little sick of these spikes in popularity with topics that sort of, at least to me, reduce its value or at a minimum, you know, without commenting on the merit of any specific thing, some of these recently viral conspiratorial topics make the whole worldview more polarizing, not less. I think that's fair to say. And I've always kind of in my hand had that card of let's also try to bring people in rather than build a wall between us and just talk crazier and crazier, wilder and wilder, only amongst ourselves. Maybe I'm overly justifying my own existence here, but I think becoming conspiracy-wise is one of the most useful things a person can do, so I really fight back on this notion that it's a waste of time overall and it doesn't get you anywhere. And I feel the same way about magic. By shunning it, that doesn't make it any less true or real or any less powerful a tool for people to use who might have nefarious reasons or want to use it against you in the form of mind control or marketing even. And I did kind of come into this interview a little more like, hey, this show has a voice. You have a lot of interesting commentary. Let's kind of blend those two. Obviously, I was trying to find that synergy. I don't know if the nail got hit exactly on the head, but I think longtime listeners would definitely be able to fold in the kind of things Carl was saying today and get what I was going for. You know, I have a really long list of guests I want to get to. My Rolodex is pretty thick, but I tried to get this one on the books partly in response to magic equals bad type of critics. And I hope we can elevate the conversation about magic above the level of paranoia and religious residue. Because to think 
testing magic out a little bit automatically equals sacrificing children and selling your soul. Come on, we can think a little bit deeper than that, can't we? I think we can. Just like you can still have a conspiracy guy over for dinner and it doesn't have to get weird. Unless we're talking about Eddie Bravo. But as a side note, I think Carl sounds exactly like Daniele Bolelli, which to me is just funny. And that accent makes it a little hard to edit around and still sound natural. So I just kind of let a lot of it go. But man, it has got to be hard to do an interview about complex, abstract things in a second language. Must give the man props for that, huh? Also, content-wise, I really liked the economy of magic part that we sort of ended the free show on. I got a little worked up there because making some of those points was a big part of doing this one, and obviously it's in my head far before an episode is actually recorded. So I was itching, you know. But admittedly, some of the money stuff that Carl was talking about is just tough these days because the economic screws are tightening. But largely, I get what he's saying. He's just talking about the change in cultural ideas around debt and credit cards or spending more than you make. It's definitely been normalized. And that is quite a feat for the credit card companies considering what they have normalized. There should be an inherent reaction of, oh shit, this is not sustainable. But they have nerfed that response right down to normalcy and necessity. And that's definitely worth pointing out. But I do like how these modes of thinking also apply to magic. Don't overwager. Try not to get obsessed. And don't get in any kind of debt, spiritual, financial, or otherwise. It's just interesting, you know, who's out there doing this sort of comparative cultural analysis between magic as just an element of life and these other things? I feel like I can count them on one hand. And I also feel as if Carl is one of the good wizards. I get a really good vibe. We had a little bit of talk about magic and nature, which was great, and it's going to come up in another show down the road here you know we like to cast a wide net so we got to hit all the other topics in the conspiratorial fringe cornucopia and we will but we're going to talk about magic and nature pretty deeply eventually here it's a connection that i've been hearing emphasized a lot more magic and nature and yes i know we've obviously heard that it's not entirely new but i think we gloss over what nature is or what it means. Because basically, what Carl was saying today, if you just engage with nature, engage with night and darkness, magic just happens. To remove randomly happening magical, paranormal experiences and encounters from the everyday lives of people has a lot to do with living in cities, developing electricity, staying comfortable indoors, etc., And here's where I think we really get into it, but maybe these indigenous cultures around the world who seem to have these really deeply developed cosmologies and models for reality and rich spirit contacts and all that jazz, whether we're talking about today or we're looking back into the ancient world and romanticizing that, from our ignorant and cut-off point of view, we think, oh man, 
These people, they don't travel around the globe or communicate with each other. They must have had teachers, spiritual or physical. But maybe spirits and magic and these modes of thinking and all this stuff, maybe it's just a natural, unavoidable element of that sort of indigenous lifestyle. Maybe it's supposed to be baked into the cake of what it is to be human. You know, Gordon has been banging this drum at us for a long time. I think it's why he's big on the permaculture thing right now. You maybe work out, how can I backdoor a re-enchantment of the world? Well, if we just get back into working with the land and bringing the nature back into our everyday lives, maybe the magic will just be as obvious as the insects, you know? And it makes absolute sense, because I've talked about the time I tried to do a little magic and go off into finding a liminal space around me in my old apartment. And I ended up going to a place in San Diego. There's a couple of them, but it's called the Slough. It's like a swampy nature preserve, and there are trails around it. And I was like, oh, great. This is kind of nature. This is about the best thing I can find. And you go there, especially at night, and it is just a homeless camp because it's still in the city. And so the idea of in that space getting away is really not realistic. And of course, I didn't have a great magical experience or a very potent one or any at all. And I didn't learn the lesson then, but I'm I'm circling around it now, I guess. But it is just like, yeah, you need nature. It's part of the soup. The magical signal isn't going to be that strong unless you are fully immersed in it. At least that's what I've been thinking lately. Nature, of course, is a big overarching term with many ingredients in that recipe. And we forgot some of those ingredients because they aren't immediately apparent and we don't live in it. And maybe spirits and magic are just as much ingredients as tomatoes and rabbits. I don't know. These are just the thoughts that have been stuck in my head lately. And it's all wrapped up in a desire to have better conversations about magic, I guess, or maybe the ancient past. And Carl, his work checks a lot of those boxes for me. So I hope I'm on the same page as you guys. I hope you know what I'm trying to get at with this thread of shows. Got a lot of threads running at once, but (laughs) this one in particular, I hope you know what I'm saying. So two complimentary shows in the can. We are going right back to some good old real-world conspiracy stuff very soon, as well as some Hollow Earth stuff that I'm pretty pumped for. Of course, today, if you only heard the first hour in the Plus show with Carl, we talked about things like why our magical potency is lacking today and what we could do about it, true art versus decoration, positive trauma and its uses, His piece, Pokemon Go Away, which I really liked, gets into technology and culture and magic. We talked about place in regards to magical potency, man, myth, and Hollywood. That new movie, Sorry to Bother You, I think that looks quite good. I didn't expect that to come up. And I talked a little bit about what I appreciated, at least from the trailer. Carl, of course, saw the movie. And for people who heard the Plus show, I wasn't trying to say that we shouldn't aim for the world to be fair. You know, we should all want to make the world better, but we should also understand that we sometimes aren't going to change the world, especially not overnight. So we have to figure out how to deal with it, how to climb these ladders, as unfair as they might be. If you're going to change the world, excellent. 
if you're going to navigate the world differently when you learn new information about how skewed it is, also great. If you're just going to complain about unfairness, well, that's not really helping on either front. That's just what I was trying to say. The movie looks good. <laughs> Sorry to bother you. Check it out. But all of this said, I think we had some interesting food for thought for sure. If you like the show I make generally, why don't you just double your pleasure, double your fun, sign up for the Higher Side Chats through my website or Patreon, if that's your thing. I think the website is easier, especially when factoring in access to the bonus stuff. Maybe I'm biased, but people like Patreon, so it is whatever. The support is always appreciated either way. A lot of people asking for support now. I'm glad you chose to indulge me if you did. So again, all that support is always appreciated, and I'm going to keep trying to bring us interesting people to push our worldly understanding higher. No pun intended. And I'll see you next time. Your move, culture creators, esoteric artists, and magic makers of the world. Your fucking. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can to ask you a question. I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed?
to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Just.